Just two weeks ago, a historic event occurred in the world of global finance. It was the first time in history that a European company hit a value of $500 billion. Now, though there are American companies that double that in their market cap, the reality for a company that is part of Europe and not part of a superpower, this is quite an achievement, $500 billion. And if you were to look at the top 10 most valuable companies in the EU, they range from, at number one, $500 billion, down to number 10, around $150 billion. And on that list, you have the usual suspects, the kinds of companies you would expect. And keep in mind, this is the top 10 of thousands of companies in the EU. You have on the top 10 a pharmaceutical company, a couple tech companies, an investment firm. But there are a few on that list that would probably surprise you, and I believe are quite appropriate to mention because we're in a study of friendship with the world. Of the top 10 most valuable companies in Europe, at number seven, you have Dior, a luxury fashion and fragrance company. A French luxury design company known especially for its handbags is at number five, Hermes. L'Oreal is at number three, a cosmetics company. And the largest company in terms of worth in the EU, valuing at $500 billion, LVMH. You know it as Louis Vuitton. It's actually a company that owns many other companies, dozens of them, including such brands as Tiffany & Company, Sephora, Bulgari, Aqua de Parma, Fendi, Christian Dior, Hennessy, and of course, Louis Vuitton. If you here this morning are familiar with more than one or two of those, shame on you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The reality is, is we live in an area that where the world gives, according to them, the best they have to offer. One of the wealthiest areas of the entire United States, if not the world. And by the way, on that same weekend, Bed Bath & Beyond, that sells things like towels and kitchen knives, officially declare bankruptcy, perhaps showing in part that we don't just want stuff, we want the good stuff. We want the luxury stuff. This glimpse into the reality of our world serves as a wake-up call in light of our study of friendship with the world. The reality is, because of where we live, most, if not all of us, recognize most, if not all, of those brands. How much more, as believers in the Bay Area, do we need to be careful? We have to be careful of the allures of the world. Now, these things, whether it's the handbags, the cosmetics to make us look more attractive, or the attention and ability to fit in that those things bring, are tempting. They draw us. They're like the siren song that call us only to end in disaster and ruin. But we can become so engulfed in these things, fashion, looking good, popularity, stuff, the things of the world, that they can actually be a form of addiction. And again, because of where we are, we need to be extra vigilant as believers. Like any addiction, we want those things because they make us feel good. They make us feel good emotionally, they make us feel good physically. They make us feel good about ourselves. It's like any addiction. Buying stuff. Having a good reputation with the world. It's really in many ways for the reasons that we pursue those things are no different than the one who wants to dull his senses through alcohol or hide from reality with drugs to get away from it all. In a gross, ironic twist, we can even go out and buy things, retail therapy they call it, on credit to hide the fact from ourselves of the actual desperate financial situation we are in. We are in a world and in an economic system that you can be broke and still go buy things on credit. We need to be careful. It can be an addiction. As we continue in chapter 4 of James, starting in verse 7, we see a therefore. 
And this therefore connects us back to our context of friendship with the world. And we are reminded by that word, therefore, before we even get into the text this morning, that James warns us, friendship with the world is hostility toward God, verse 4. He says in that same verse that the one who makes himself a friend of the world by that very action makes himself an enemy of God. And this all comes to a crescendo in verse 6 when James tells us that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The connection there is that the more selfish and self-seeking we are, the more we will turn to the world rather than God because the world fulfills those proud and selfish desires. Whereas God calls for humility. God calls for selfless love and commitment to Him and His people. God calls for sacrifice, not self-indulgence. And so we understand that the Christian who has fallen into friendship with the world does not just find himself or herself in a position of a bit too much focus on self. This isn't just an issue of bad stewardship or time management. The biggest issue isn't even that it pulls you away from the church. This person finds themselves in a position of enmity with God. So what do you do? What's the solution? Fortunately for us, as the world does with so many other addictions and their 12-step programs, the Lord gives us a six-step program for this particular vice. And it's found in verses 7 through 10 of James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, we're talking about friendship with the world, love of the world. He says, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. If you were to take that passage out of context, it is powerful, it is applicable, And the last thing you would think is this is talking about love of the world. And yet in the context, draw near to God, submit, resist the devil, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. This is all within the context of loving stuff, loving reputation, loving what the world can offer. And so this morning, I want to give you six steps to breaking your love of the world. Six steps, a six-step program to breaking your addiction to what the world has to offer. Six steps to breaking your love of the world. Our outline comes straight from the text, straightforward, nothing fancy, no alliteration. But I do want to point out that in each sentence we have an imperative. That's a fancy word for a command. In the Greek, it is a command. These are not suggestions. These are commands from the Lord imperatives within the context of breaking any affection for the world, but not limited to those who struggle with such things. Because as you will see, as you've already seen, as you read the passage, these commands apply even for the person who is wholly committed to the Lord and has no friendship with the world whatsoever. So whether you struggle with desiring the pleasures of the world or not, these commands are for you as a believer. Let's jump right in. We have a lot to cover. The first step is submit. Submit. Verse 7a says, Submit therefore to God. We explained already what the therefore is already, connects us to the context of friendship with the world. To submit, you understand this, it means to put yourself under the authority of someone else. It literally, in the Greek, means to rank under and was mainly used in a military context. But this is not a picture of a slavish, unwilling submission pictured by a threatening commander with his boot on your neck. A fuller meaning of the word submit expresses alignment with the authority of another. So for the Christian, this is a joyful appreciation of the privilege of being free in Christ, a freedom that allows us to resist the love of the world and to obey Him. The tense of the word command or the tense of the command to submit in the Greek, tells us that this should be done willingly. 
Other English versions bring this out with the phrase, submit yourselves. And the one whom we are to submit to, of course, is God. Submission is a bad word in our culture today, but it is an important one for the Christian. There are many human relationships that call for submission in the New Testament, but all fall under the larger umbrella and the ultimate submission of all believers to God. And when we talk about submission to God, we are talking about obedience to Him in our hearts and in our actions. It is a constant commitment that we are to make. It is not just a prayer that you made years ago. It is something that we are to constantly do. This is the idea of lordship, making God, making Jesus our Lord. Even within the most famous of salvation formulas in Romans 10, we are told salvation involves confessing Jesus as Lord. This is not mere lip service. This is a true, full submission to the authority and thus the commands of God. To put it simply, what James is calling us to do is willingly obey everything in the Bible. The principle that we have seen throughout our study of friendship with the world is that of either or, for or against. In other words, you cannot be a lukewarm Christian. You are either all in for God or all in for the world. And this principle is further expounded in our next imperative in that our submission is either to God or to the devil. So in submitting to God, we must resist the devil. And that's step number two in breaking your love of the world. Resist. He goes on to say in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have six steps this morning in this passage. Three of them contain explicit promises. This is the first of the ones with promises. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. To resist means to stand against. And for many, this will be the first step in submitting to God because the one we are to resist is his enemy and the one who pulls us away from God. Devil is the word diabolos, where we get diabolical. It is the word that the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses to translate the Hebrew word Satan. Devil is the most common title for Satan in the New Testament. The grammar in the Greek, again, tells us that there is no middle ground. We are not to give the devil even an inch. In practical terms, this gives the Christian a lot to hope in. First, that you as a believer can resist the devil. There is no blaming of the devil. There is no, the devil made me do it. You can resist. Second, although very powerful, the devil, also known as the tempter, is not one that we must give into. Our salvation frees us from bondage to sin. We understand that. We say this all the time. We are free from the shackles, the bondage to sin. But that also means we are freed from the inability to resist the devil. Now here in our circles, I personally don't like to blame the devil because the Bible is so clear that we are not to blame the devil. Sin is our choice. And if we are to blame anyone, we are to blame ourselves. Not the devil, not the world. You chose that. I choose that. And this statement that we can resist the devil further emphasizes this. Because even if you blame the devil, as a believer, you know it was your choice to obey the devil. This is attested to all over the New Testament. In the context of lying and anger, Ephesians 4.27 tells us not to give the devil an opportunity. Then in Ephesians 6.11, we are told to put on the full armor of God, and I'll quote, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And most clearly in 1 Peter 5. In fact, I'd like you to turn there with me. 1 Peter 5, verses 8-9. through 9. A very powerful and well-known passage because it depicts 
the grossness of the devil, the desires of the devil, the trickery of the devil. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9 say this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Great warning, especially when it comes to friendship with the world. Be on the alert. It seems like a small thing, but be on the alert. When you know your coworker just got a raise, be on the alert when you look at his parking spot if you have temptations for stuff. Be on the alert in looking at your coworker's handbags, whatever it may be. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him. That's the same word we have in James 4. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Resist the devil. There are temptations all around us. But how do we resist the devil? How do we do it? With the primary tool in your spiritual arsenal. In fact, it is the same tool that Jesus Himself used in the wilderness when being tempted by the same individual, the devil. And that is the Word of God. There's nothing complex about it. No secret handshake. No secret prayer that they only teach pastors in seminary. It's just the Word of God. Jesus Himself, God, very God, all He did was quote Scripture. He did not budge either way. He did not add to it. He did not take it away. He did not argue. He just quoted the Scriptures. And by the way, 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 tells us that the devil, as an enemy of God, is not just someone who sits there and says, yeah, I'm a fallen angel. I'm over the demons. I'm an enemy of God. I'm just sitting here kind of doing my thing. No. He is active. And in God's sovereignty, He is the prince of the power of the air. In God's sovereignty, He is the one who is over this depraved world that we live in. Now, the promise that I mentioned is found at the end of the verse. The devil will flee from you. And I want you to understand that is a promise. The wording is clear. Not he might, he will. In other words, the outcome of resisting him is that he flees. But here's the thing. We don't know when he attacks. We don't even know how he attacks. We don't even know when he flees. But so long as we are diligent and vigilant, we take hold of this promise. Now, this is very different than what you see in other religions or even see on television. There is no need for a pastor or priest to come and rebuke the devil. There is no exercising a demon. This is just basic Christian obedience. If he finds that you will not give in to temptation, then he will go away. Now, I want to be clear because I don't want you to get the idea that the devil is going around from church to church, Christian to Christian, knocking on your proverbial door to personally attack you. He doesn't. And frankly, he can't because he is not omnipresent like God. He has bigger fish to fry, so to speak. However, the principle is clear regarding how we are to view sin and in our specific context, the allures of the world. Stand firm, obey, submit, resist. If you resist the devil, you are moving away from the temptations, the allures of the devil. And if you're moving away from someone, whom are you moving to? Well, God. You're moving to God. And this brings us to our third step to breaking your love of the world. Approach. Approach. Verse 8, verse 8a, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. When we talk about drawing near to God, we're not speaking of some sort of emotional or sentimental feeling or movement. This is all about truth and the believer responding to that truth. The truth about God's character that drives you to love Him more. The truth about yourself that drives you to obey Him more. We are also not talking about unbelievers here. This is about the believer growing in his relationship with God. Growing his affection for God that will naturally come out of or result in decreasing affection for sin, for the things of the world. 
The beauty of this is that in Christ, there is no need for another human mediator to draw near to God. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pope. You don't need a pastor. Not any sort of earthly minister. This is about you. This is about your relationship with God. Because of the death of Jesus Christ, He has opened up the door so that you as a believer have direct access to God. Yes, you can have accountability with your small group. Yes, you can ask for prayer. Yes, you can ask for counsel. But you don't need me to do that for you. I can't do that for you. I don't even know what that means. All I see in that is some sort of corrupt system that other religions have taken to manipulate their people, make more money. You have direct access to God. Draw near to God. And to be fair, this isn't just about you and your relationship with God. Drawing near to God is also about you and your relationship with the world. This cannot happen if you don't have the desire for greater intimacy with God, desiring to know Him more. Just as with resisting the devil, this is something you need to actively pursue all the time. And the reality is we don't pursue things that we don't want. And you're definitely not going to want Him if you overwhelmingly want the world. Remember, friendship with the world destroys friendship with God. And if you do have this desire to draw near to God, and since drawing near to God is the other half of resisting the devil, then the means is the same. The Word of God. The Word of God living out in your life. The Word of God being applied to the various circumstances of your life. The Word of God, yes, does not have the particulars of what time you should wake up, the very words you should say to your boss, how you should fill out that forms, what keys to type, but the principles are there. The Word of God guides you. We need to stop looking for anything outside of the Word. God to speak to us, a dream, a vision, some sort of experience. Start with the Word of God. Reading. The Bible. Say, so isn't that a little Sunday schoolish? That's why it's Sunday schoolish. That's why we teach kids that. The foundations, just like we teach kids to brush their teeth and use the toilet, it is foundational for the rest of life. It should be so natural. I mean, I don't think there are any adults here who go, hmm, yeah, that's garlicky tonight. What should I do before bed? What should I, what was that thing I do? No, you just naturally, that's your routine. And you don't sit there going, oh, where do I go to the bathroom? Where do I? You go to the toilet. You don't even think about it. And that's how reading the Word of God should be. I had just realized what I'm comparing it to. But that's what reading the Word of God should be. It should be instinctive. It shouldn't be, who should I talk to? Where should I go? What does God want me to do? Go to the Word of God. And that's why it should be foundational. And that's why so often we hear this these profound doctrines, and then the pastor says, so you just need to read your Bible, and you're like, oh, okay, fine, yeah. Don't overlook it. It's foundational. Reading and studying the Bible is reading and studying the character of God and the character of God which flows out in His particular and specific goodness to you. If we find comfort if we find satisfaction in the world, it's because we see the world, we get this stuff, whether it's material or it's intellectual or emotional, and we feel good, and we love the world even more because we attribute it to the world because we're not studying the character of God and realize, yes, this is an expensive thing of the world. Praise God for it. Praise God for my spouse. Praise God for my kids. Praise God that my, my coworkers think highly of me because I'm just a wretched sinner. That is God working through me. But if you think it's you, if you think it's your boss, if you think it's your coworkers, if you think it's the Mercedes-Benz dealership, then there you go. It's what the world has to offer instead of knowing and defaulting to the character of God and saying it's all from Him. Praise God. And then, in light of that goodness that we recognize, we repent. What does that mean? It means, again, looking to the Word 
to see what sin is and to see what obedience is, what dishonors Him and what glorifies Him. As with our last point, there's a promise here. This is, I mean, what, what can you say? This is amazing. When we draw near to God, He will draw near to us. And this act of God is further evidence of the victory over the devil as well as victory over the love of the world. Think about your friends, your family, their other religions, their warped view of who God is. They have to chase God. Our God chases us. He is not a distant God who does not want to be found or who takes pleasure in playing games with humanity. He wants a relationship with us. And this is evidenced by His initiation and His providing the means of reconciliation in the death of His own Son. And often we find comfort in the world because there is something tangible there. I get it. We hear the words of praise. We see the money in the bank. We touch the devices. We wear the clothes. There's an instant gratification that can be felt, that can be seen, that others compliment. And so often we turn to God and it's silent. There's no hug, there's no praise, and we feel like He's not there. We know He's there, but we feel like He isn't. When you feel like that, you look to this passage, you look to this verse, and you remember that He promises us that when we turn to Him, He comes to us. When we repent, He is there to forgive. When we run to Him, He does not wait for us with open arms. He runs towards us too. Like your reflection in a mirror, the closer you get, the closer the image gets, so it is with God. But James says you must make the break with the world and draw near to God. This is a pursuit of holiness. And this pursuit of holiness is often signified in both the Old and New Testaments as purifying and cleansing. And that's our next point. Step number four, purify. The end of verse 8 says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Those ideas, those words of cleansing and purifying come from the Old Testament regulations of purity required of priests as they ministered to the Lord on behalf of the people. There was a set of prescribed steps they needed to take to be declared clean physically, outwardly, and suitable for the task at hand, whatever offering, whatever ritual they were performing. Over time, these words came to describe not just physical cleanliness, but moral purity. When it comes to the pursuit of holiness and drawing near to God, cleanse and purify are two different parts of one larger action. Now we know that God desires us to be holy. To do this, we must take steps of self-purification, which involve repentance and obedience with our hands and our hearts. He mentions hands because they re represent what we do, the actions of our lives. And the heart represents intention and decision. It is the seat of our affections. To put it another way, the hands are to do good works while the heart makes the commitment to do them. Now James makes clear why there is a need for this purifying. He says we are sinners and we are double-minded. Sinners we understand. We are all disobedient to God, even as believers, even as the redeemed, we sin all the time. Double-minded, we have seen as a key theme throughout the letter. You may recall that it literally means in the Greek double-souled and refers to someone who lacks integrity, who lacks a singular focus on God. A believer who tends toward a friendship with the world has compromised the integrity of a complete and singular focus on God. He's double-minded. We see then why purify your hearts is commanded of the double-minded since the heart involves decision-making and commitment. Listen to Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. 
who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. In other words, to put it in James's terms, the one with clean hands and a pure heart can draw near to God. As believers, we understand this. And we understand that this is possible because we have already seen, we are already seen rather, by the Father as holy and righteous in the Son. But practically speaking, our flesh keeps us in a constant battle with sin. We must take the leading and grace of God and utilize it to battle impurity, to battle uncleanliness, such that we do not give up and give in to sin, and particularly the allures of the world. Purify. Step number five. Lament. Lament. He says in verse 9, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, at first glance, this may be strange. It sounds strange as believers are called to rejoice always. Until you understand that James is using these terms to refer to the lament, the misery, the mourning and weeping that leads to repentance the mourning over sin, the misery over sin, the weeping over sin, and he also speaks of the laughter, the worldly joy that is attributed to fools. He begins by calling believers to be miserable and mourn and weep. To be miserable actually means to endure difficulties, to endure hardship, distress, toils, because this is the path of repentance. The inner sorrow over sin in the heart of the believer. This is not only because of the recognition of the offense committed against God, but also due to an understanding of the spiritual condition that sin corresponds to. There is a brokenness over sin in the believer's heart that leads to true repentance. In men's group, we've been talking a lot about the marks of a true believer. In other words, if someone claims to be a Christian but you're not sure if it's an authentic Christianity, what would you look for? Not to judge them, but to help them, to encourage them, to preach to them. I believe this is one of them. If there is no true internal remorse over sin, then there may not be a true living faith. Now, we're not talking about a worldly sorrow that comes from things like loss or the fear of man, you understand this. Even an unbeliever, and we do this too, we feel bad because of something bad we've done because now this person doesn't want to be our friend. Now we're worried that our coworkers don't like us. It has nothing to do with God. That's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 calls worldly sorrow. Yes, sorrow over some sort of sin or, or trespass or wrong deed because of something involving the world, often attributed in our own hearts to the fear of man. It's feeling bad over sin and even, even changing your ways simply because of the consequences. And that kind of sorrow, again, according to 2 Corinthians 7.10, produces death. And what James is talking about is what Paul in that verse calls sorrow that is according to the will of God. This is a godly sorrow. It produces true repentance before the Lord. And understand that changing your ways or ending the bad behavior, a change in your lifestyle, is not true repentance unless it is turning away from sin and to God. A worldly sorrow just to help you understand it, would be turning away from sin to a better reputation, a happier marriage, a better example for your kids, whatever it may be, a raise, a promotion. True godly sorrow that produces true repentance is turning away from sin to God, which we know also means putting on 
an act of obedience that counteracts the sin. In worldly sorrow, you are turning away from sin to self in the sense that you are just doing it to feel good or preserve your reputation or make your circumstances more favorable or just to keep your money, whatever it may be. Now, all of this helps us to understand why part of the solution to loving the world is to be miserable because we're talking about the sorrow over sin. Miserable because of sin, misery that leads to repentance. James goes on to say that we are to mourn and weep. Mourning, of course, is most commonly associated with mourning the death of someone. It refers to any sort of grief that brings heartache, brings physical tears. Weeping is an expression of mourning, and the two can actually be used interchangeably. In Scripture, though, they are used, and this is so important, in Scripture, mourning and weeping are used as a reaction to God's judgment and punishment for apostasy, especially among the Israelites in the Old Testament. And it is that meaning that James refers to here. He is saying that because of our sin and in response to our sin, mourn and repent now rather than mourning and weeping later when you face God's judgment. In the next phrase, James casts the net wider and says that our worldly laughter, our worldly joy need to be turned to this mourning, this gloom. This is the laughter and joy of the world. This is the laughter and joy, the enjoyment of the world of one who has declared their independence from God. It is used in this way throughout the Proverbs specifically. It is a worldly, self-centered, hedonistic laughter that mocks the idea of righteous living. From a world's perspective, ungodly, pagans, heretics, atheists have fun. They're laughing. They're enjoying. They're relishing in their sin and their hedonism all because they are rejecting the morality and the demands of their Creator. That's the laughter and joy that is being spoken of here. And although these people feel free, they feel unfettered with their carefree attitude, the reality is that they are ignoring the terrifying truth of God's wrath. The believer, on the other hand, mourns and weeps over their sin not because of coming wrath, but because of the wrath that has come on the cross. Looking back at the cross and the salvation that belongs to us. The believer takes the sinful worldly joy and turns it into gloom. Being downcast and dismayed like the tax collector in Luke 18 who cannot even bring himself to lift his eyes to heaven as he cries out, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Although seemingly the most odd at first read, this step now makes the most sense in light of our friendship with the world. We foolishly laugh in the indulgence of worldly pleasures and material things. Things that we use to cover up genuine sadness that stems from sin. We must be careful. We must be sober-minded. We must take seriously not only the state of the world, but the state of our souls. I understand the truth of hearing this and in your life saying, well, I know when I sin. I repent of my sin. I confess my sin. Well, I don't know if I've ever cried because of my sin. Oh, I've cried when I've seen the consequences of my sin that hurt my family, hurt my friends, hurt my church, whatever it may be. But when's the last time you've truly mourned over sin simply because it is sin? Because of the cross because of who you know died because of those sins, for those sins. This is not a call to be like a young Roger many years ago at my grandfather's funeral whom I barely knew 
is a very Buddhist funeral. And so being the sons of the oldest son, my brother and I were dressed in traditional sackcloth and we were kneeling on the ground for about an hour. And I felt bad that I was not crying. It was one of the first times I ever saw my dad cry. And so I tried to dig my knees harder into the gravel to force myself to cry. That's not what we're talking about here. Because again, that's just worldly. That's just external. It goes back to having a true sense of the goodness and the holiness and the love of God and loving Him back. And that may mean that you never actually cry over your sin. But the more we understand who God is and the more we love Him, the more we have a relationship with Him, the more we have genuine feelings of guilt because of an understanding of true objective guilt, you understand, that we truly are remorseful over our sin even when the consequences on other people are not even evident yet. It's the same thing as you've grown in your relationship with your parents. As a kid, you didn't care if you disobeyed them. You didn't care if you hurt them. You didn't care if your words bothered them. But now as you're older, you understand. You feel bad when you lose your temper and say, ah, I feel so bad that I hurt my mom like that. It's the same thing with the Lord. The deeper you grow in your relationship with Him, the more you will naturally feel remorseful not because you've lost your salvation, not because he needs to be crucified again, not because you change your standing in God's view, but because you love him and you know he adores you. Take this seriously. Lament. Well, we're looking at six steps to breaking your love of the world. We've come to number six. We've seen submit, resist, approach, purify, lament. Finally, humble. Humble. I know there's a lot, and ironically, because there's a lot, I'm going faster. Um, But I wanted to get through this in, in one morning. Let's get to the last point. Humble. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. Now, this brings us full circle back to the verse we saw last time. In verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Again, We know the importance of humility, but this is within the context of loving the world. The word humble, and I admit, even in my outline, you have all these verbs, these commands, and then humble doesn't sound right because it should be be humble or humble yourself. The word humble in the Greek is literally be humble. It means to make low. In the same vein as what we have seen thus far, this morning, this, calls, this call is not to be humbled by another, but to humble yourselves, as he writes here. At the very fundamental level of the gospel, this is achieved by recognizing your own spiritual condition, namely spiritual poverty, which in turn leads you to see your desperate need for God's help. This help is taken hold of through submission to His will for our lives. So humbling oneself will include repentance. It will include self-abasement. These are the very opposites of the proud jealousy and selfishness that we have seen James describe the friendship with the world. Of course, this is not just to be false humility, which is that easy-to-fall-into habit of saying the right things to sound humble. This is true humility that can only come from God. There can be no sense of self-entitlement here. Man, talk about temptations from the world. Self-entitlement is a defining characteristic of our society today. Whether you think they're good or bad, all these social movements start with self-entitlement. Everything you buy, everything you say, everything you demand when you're angry at the counter, when you're frustrated with the the weight at Trader Joe's, it is self-entitlement. You think you deserve more. You may not say that, but you are essentially saying, how dare you make me wait? What's wrong with you? This should be quick for me, my time. Self-entitlement. 
And it's all over. It's printed over every single news story I watch every night on the news. Self-entitlement. There is none here in the true believer who is humble. There's only overwhelming gratitude because you realize how undeserving you are. Undeserving of a quick line? No. Undeserving of whatever that bothers you? No. Undeserving, not just of God's love, of even God taking a moment to look at our wretched, sin-sick souls. We are undeserving of the most important thing. And the reality is that friendship with the world is a way of lifting yourself up, exalting yourself, whether it's through personal satisfaction and comfort or an external show to impress others or a combination of the two. True commitment to the Lord, true humility, true wisdom involve following the steps outlined in Scripture so that God will exalt you Literally, make high, exalt, lift up. 1 Peter 5 adds that God will do so at the proper time. Everything is within the will and ways of God, His perfect timing. It can be hard to do this, to fully trust in God rather than yourself, to wait on the pat on the back from God, well done, good and faithful servant, and trying to fight for the praise of man today, right now. It can be hard to wait on treasures in heaven rather than indulging in temporal pleasures. And so we exalt ourselves in our own sense of comfort and financial stability through our own abilities, our own status, our own money. We are told in this world to be self-confident. Don't look weak. If you don't know, fake it. Don't ask for help. Don't say, I don't know. Exude self-confidence. My friend, self-confidence is going to destroy you and those around you. Nothing scares me more when I observe Christian leaders who don't ask for help, who think that projecting an image of self-confidence is more important than looking weak or looking like they don't know. They will not only ruin themselves, they will take down the church with them. While the world admires overly confident people in the church, we need to be wary of them because we recognize how small, how weak, how undeserving, how needy we are. Friendship with the world means trying to impress others, trying to comfort others by letting them know, hey, I got this. Friendship with God means trying to point others to Christ. I want to comfort you as your pastor by letting you know I can't, but God can. That's my job. I do not want you to have confidence in me. I want you to have confidence in me so far as I parrot the words of God who's working through me. I'm a loser, I'm a sinner. I'm wicked. I can't. God can. Look at the verse again. We are only to do this, he says, in the presence of God. Humble yourselves in the presence of God. Friends, you are always in the presence of God. And that's the key. It's not just trying to be humble when you think he's there. It is the one who recognizes that he is always in the presence of a holy and righteous God that will truly humble himself. And that phrase also reminds us why we do this. Not for others, not to look good, not to make others feel good, but for God. For God. You know why church and ministry are so exhausting for many of us? Because it's hard to keep up a facade. It's hard to be someone you're not. It's hard to look godly for other people rather than for God. And that's the beauty of this addiction to the world. See, there's no opposite replacement for other addictions. 
Right? They just teach you how to stop, how to break it, how to not go back into that. There's no opposite substance you can inject to break an addiction to heroin. There's no opposing liquid you can consume to break being an alcoholic. There's not even a contrasting visual to look at instead of pornography. But there is something you can turn to, look to, run to, to counteract your love of the world, and that something is a someone, and that someone is God. Turn to God. Six steps to breaking your love of the world. Submit, resist, approach, purify, lament, humble. In other words, turn to God, 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 and turn to God. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the clear description of love of the world. Thank You, Lord, that You acknowledge it. Thank You that You see our weakness. Thank You that You give us the truth to help us battle it. May we truly be people who follow this approach, specifically in our love for the world, but in regards to all sin. Lord, we know that you've given us so many things in this world to not just to exist, to sustain just the bare necessities of our lives and our health, but you have given us things to enjoy, and we praise you for that. Not just manna from heaven, Not just teeth, but tongues to enjoy, to taste. To be able to enjoy the different foods, the different restaurants, to acknowledge and recognize, even in unbelievers, the ingenuity and wisdom of man that you have created to come up with different things. Technology, dishes, conveniences. We thank you for those. May we use those in a way that acknowledge you in humility and gratitude. But if those things, if the pursuit of those things have become a love of the world for any of us, if we are teetering on the brink, help us to love you more. Help us to turn to you. Help us to recognize the grossness and gravity of sin. Help us to stop making excuses and convince ourselves that there's a middle ground when you yourself say we are either friends with the world or love you. We do love you, Lord, but we need your help to do so more thoroughly, more extensively, more deeply. So grow us, teach us, use us, convict us, and draw us to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.